0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the 136th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID 19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I speak with disaster research polymath Elon Kelman about COVID 19 and disaster diplomacy. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 28, 2020, there are globally 33,213,739 confirmed cases of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 32,356,829 reported on Friday. 7,127,210 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,997,468 reported Friday. And there are now a total of 204,861 deaths in the United States reported from COVID 19 up from 203,147 reported on Friday. That death total for the United States is half of the number of soldiers from the United States who died in World War II. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Yukio Okamoto diplomat who nurtured Japan's U.S. ties, dies at 74. This appeared in the New York Times by Ben Dooley on May 8th. Yukio Okamoto, a Japanese diplomat and advisor to prime ministers who was one of the most effective advocates for Japan's alliance with the United States and the country's increased role in international politics, died April 24. He was 74. Mr. Okamoto, a native of Kanagawa prefecture, died in a Tokyo hospital of pneumonia brought on by the novel coronavirus, his office said. Urbane with a precise command of English, Mr. Okamoto helped steer the American-Japanese relationship through some of its most difficult times. He was assigned to manage the partnership between the two countries in the 1980s when they were competing for the mantle of global economic leadership. While also banding together over their shared apprehension of the Soviet Union's influence in Asia. In 1991, Mr. Okamoto took the rare step of leaving his job at Japan's foreign ministry to start his own consulting firm, going on to serve on numerous corporate boards. But the Japanese government would not let him go. Over the decades, the country's prime ministers called on him to use his deep reservoir of knowledge about the United States and close relationships with his American counterparts to help navigate some of the most sensitive issues affecting the country's relationship, from the disposition of a U.S. marine base in Okinawa to the handling of the 70th anniversary of World War II. Even after his career as a diplomat officially ended, Mr. Okamoto continued to serve as one of Japan's most capable champions. He articulated the country's politics and policies through private discussions and meetings, public lectures, and countless appearances in the media, including in the pages of the New York Times. At home, he was a well-known commentator and author, publishing regular columns and writing and contributing to numerous books on politics. At the time of his death, he was working on a book that he hoped would pass on his knowledge of and enthusiasm for the U.S.-Japan alliance to the next generation. Along the way, the refined but approachable former diplomat won friends and admirers from across the political spectrum. While Yukio stood out for his policy entrepreneurship, it was his humanity that drew people from so many different fields into lifelong friendships with him. Michael Green and Kurt Campbell, both of whom worked with Mr. Okamoto in high-level American policy positions, wrote in a statement on the website of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, Those working on U.S.-Japan relations today will want to remember and take some inspiration from the fact that our alliance was ultimately forged, not by the impersonal forces of history, but by men and women like Yukio Okamoto. I'd like to introduce my guest for today conversation I've really look, been looking forward to. Let me introduce Elon Kelman, he's professor of disasters and health at University College London in England, and a professor too at the University of Agder, Kristiansand Norway. His overall research interest is linking disasters and health, including the integration of climate change into disaster research and health research. His research portfolio is broad and includes three main areas disaster diplomacy and health diplomacy, island sustainability involving safe and healthy communities in isolated locations, and risk reduction for health and disasters. And he has an almost unlimited number of publications, many of which we will discuss here today. Ilan Kelman, thank you so much for your time coming on COVID calls.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the work you're doing in terms of bringing people here and disseminating messages that we need to hear. I'd
0: like to start the way we usually do, which is asking people where they're calling from and, and how the pandemic is looking there today. So can you bring us up to speed on where you are and how it's looking?
1: Yeah, so I'm in London, in the UK, and unfortunately it's not looking good as it has not done since the beginning. So the death toll is oscillating a bit as they recalculate, but we're looking at a total of about 42,000 deaths from COVID-19 and whereas testing had incre- has been increasing about linearly since since around may unfortunately over the last few weeks the number of te- positive tests has absolutely accelerated and that's been exponential so we're now around four thousand five thousand positive tests per day very fortunately deaths are still at a low number maybe about a dozen per day, uh, although that fluctuates quite substantially. And we're just hoping that number of hospitalizations do not increase exponentially. And of course, number of deaths not increasing exponentially. But a lot of the measures which are being taken are very erratic, are not very systematic. Lockdown and the way it's been implemented has been taking its toll on people. And there's a lot of competing forces trying to, say, open up or close down to different levels. So it's an unfortunately difficult and not very pleasant environment.
0: Of course, in the United States, we've grown accustomed to seeing um, something which eight months ago would have been not even comprehensible to people, public demonstrations against the wearing of masks, for example. And I've seen a little bit of that in the news out of London, people demonstrating in Trafalgar Square, for example, Is that in some way representative or is that something the American media has latched on to make us feel like we're not all alone here in the North American continent?
1: So far, a lot of the people who are claiming skepticism about either the pandemic or the measures taken to control it, they tend to be a fairly small minority. The challenge is that a lot of people are suffering because of the lockdown measures and a lot of that frustration may be expressed in terms of saying, well, why are we even bothering with anything Such as masks. It has not been helped by some of the government's confusing messages. So they brought out an alert system, which simply didn't work. They kept on switching messages, some of which were very ambiguous. And they're coming close at the moment where they're talking about face, hands, and space, which is reasonable. It's the three measures to be taken, except they got it in the wrong order. Because it should be space, hands, and then face. Stay away from people, and you don't need to wear a mask. The mask is only to stop you infecting others when they're in close proximity. So stay away from people. Wash your hands frequently. Don't touch your face and then wear a face covering if possible. So, yeah, I fully understand people's confusion. I fully understand the frustration. Livelihoods and dreams have been devastated. While many people at the top, including the prime minister's closest advisor, basically broke down lockdown measures. And then he in particular, whereas others resigned and apologized, this advisor in particular refused to apologize, is still in his position and was trying to defend his actions with ridiculous excuses. So when people at the top don't worry about it, yes, I fully understand why people respond that way, which then can easily be translated into, you know what, let's go to Trafalgar Square and just yell at people and yell at the government. I do understand where some of them are coming from.
0: Tell us a little bit about what's happening on your campus? Are you remote? Are you in person? Are you hybrid? How's that playing out?
1: So right now University College London has guaranteed a small level of face-to-face teaching. We are being very clear to the students that they have to be very flexible and adaptable because we simply don't know. I or the student could come down with symptoms at any point. So even in that that morning if we have guaranteed a face-to-face session on that day it may have to be cancelled and go online at the last minute. UCL has done very well in terms of saying we don't want more than 25% people on the campus, they've instituted one-way systems and are very controlling of the entrances and exits as they should be, as well as increasing cleaning and the hygiene measures. The real challenge is that students come to university for reasons to make use of the facilities, to meet other people and to enjoy sort of the face-to-face with us, with the teachers, with the lecturers and supervising, and they're not getting that much of it, which very much affects the experience. Also, we have a situation now where I think as of today, there were over 40 universities had reported outbreaks of COVID-19 amongst the students. So our term actually starts around this time, sort of depending on the university, mid-September until late September. So this is our first week of term at UCL. And we're looking around and saying we want to give the students experience. They deserve it. We owe it to them. But we obviously don't want to contribute to the pandemic. And it's not just being on campus with the 25 percent sort of maximum probably helping. It's also the fact that people have to get there. And we're we're the ones where we can do this. We can have this online conversation. We can actually do things remotely. Should we really be risking people in the streets around public transportation when there are others who don't have a choice? So it's a struggle and it's a balance. And our leadership has actually communicated very well. Uh, There's been a lot going on. The staff have been working incredibly hard over the Northern Hemisphere summer to move most of teaching online and trying Mm -hmm. to make this decision Are the rooms ventilated? Is it going to be clean enough? How do you actually teach when you're wearing a face covering? Which is a challenge, Uh, not only in terms of your mouth not being dry and being able to talk, but also students who may lip read to help understand or those who are hearing impaired. So it's hard, but at the moment we are guaranteeing some level of face-to-face. Whether or not that happens, we'll see over the coming weeks.
0: Well, thank you for giving us that context. Uh, what about you? How how have you been able to do your work in, in this time? I mean, I think of you as a, know you as a scholar who has a global purview. Um, I sort of, when I look at your publications, I sort of think like, is this a person who's ever at home? Um, and I wonder, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the pandemic has shaped your work in these last six months?
1: Well, I mean, from my perspective, I simply can't complain the fact that i have the information technology that i have the internet um is a privilege the the fact that i still have my job and in fact it's probably far more secure than it was before the pandemic due to a lot of the interest in our areas of disasters and health and their connections as well as the fact that a lot of students have also quite interestingly said you know what this is my chance to do an online degree so maybe i'm going to take that opportunity and recognize that this may not come in the future, or at least we hope it won't come that much in the future. So in that sense, our students have been very interested, very engaged, and because the media, of course, and the public uh, have quite rightly really wondering, well, what's going on? How did we get into this position? It's been very good for us to try and work with the public and the media to get messages out there and to try to help people. And through my teams and colleagues around the world, yes, we've been writing a lot. So before, yeah, there was a bit of travel, certainly a moderate around. And again, it's very privileged to be able to do that. But to get that level of publications and the messages out to different venues, not just academic, we have to be in front of our computer. We have to be sitting here. So again, from my perspective, it's that privilege, it's that opportunity to say, I need to experiment with teaching. I need to experiment with different ways of communicating and of writing and of speaking as we are doing right now. Um, but the fact that I do have my job, that I have a very good home working environment, that I can order whatever groceries or anything I need online. And if the cost is a bit more, it's not an issue for me because I'm not living paycheck to paycheck. So it is just incredible when I think about the opportunities and options I have compared to the majority of the population who are just severely, severely hurting. And that's so hard when we know that we knew that so much was preventable and those who have far more power resources and opportunities than us simply did not do what they were mandated to do.
0: Well, you you're not the only scholar I've talked to on COVID calls who's had a book come out in the middle of this. Um, I think your newest book, um, Disaster by Choice, came out early. in. did it come out in February? It came out in February, yeah. Okay, so right on the verge of things. And um, that means that whatever activities you would... I talked with Andy Horowitz, who is a historian at Tulane, and his book about Katrina had come out. And and of course, uh, there is usually a bit of travel and public speaking that goes along with these books because we spend years working on them. And then we want to engage, come out of the cave and engage with people. Um, like Andy, you've been in a situation of probably having to do a lot of sort of Zoom Discussion about the about the book, and so let's let's do that now. I'd like to find out a little bit about the project, and I know um, you know a little bit about it, and I know that you're one of the scholars who has taken head on the concept of the natural disaster and forced us to to rethink that. And so I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about the project and some of the cases that you work on in it, and and why you have such a big beef with
1: natural disaster. Let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, here's a sort of copy of the book for people to take a look at. And it came out at the end of February. So I was able to do the launch in person in Oxford, and then everything else after that was cancelled. But from my perspective, no complaints, no concern. I mean, having a couple of book appearances um, not be in person compared to what everyone else is going through, it's completely irrelevant. And again, because people were so interested in what was the pandemic a natural disaster, how could this happen when we have this knowledge, I've been doing so many of these online venues. We even did one sort of seminar via Twitter, sending out a lot of tweets, getting people to respond. And whereas you might get 40, 100 people in the room for something in person, we've had double that, triple that in online venues and people who would not be able to travel to the UK or the other places for these book events. So again, it's a privilege. And I just hope that the messages are letting people know what we should have done, but also what we should be doing now in terms of a future, which comes right back to this issue of why disasters are not natural. Because the environment does what it does. I mean, the environment is not out there being evil or uh, malevolent trying to kill us. And a lot of what the environment provides, whether it's a hurricane giving water resources or falls, seismic falls, actually permitting water to percolate to the surface in the desert, or volcanic ash and floods giving fertile land, helps us. So what the environment does, often called environmental hazards, simply cannot be the disaster. Some people can deal with it, some people can't. Same way that, you know, the pandemic has affected me, as it has all of us, but how can I complain? Whereas other people, their entire life's work has been wiped out. So people have different levels of power, resources, opportunities, and choices. And it's how we deal with it collectively that determines what the disaster is and is not. So it's not nature. It's not natural. So we shouldn't be calling them natural disasters. They're simply disasters.
0: So let's talk about the choice dimension then. What are the different scales and frameworks that we think about? Choice. I mean, land use, obviously being one. Or systems, government that we put into place. Even, I suppose, the the choice to not see poverty itself is a, is a way of choosing. Can Can you say a little bit about that that word? Because it's a powerful word.
1: Yeah, yeah and it's certainly one which has generated a lot of very legitimate discussion. Who chooses, and why do they choose? So we know that disasters come from these vulnerabilities, not from the environment, not from the hazards. We know that these vulnerabilities are created by the systems of power. And typically people who are most vulnerable are the ones who have the least choice regarding their vulnerabilities. So someone, some system, some collective, some individuals are making these choices to create and perpetuate vulnerabilities, and not to admit what disasters are, not to admit their causes, not to deal with them. So whether it's that individual saying, you know what, oh, this is a beautiful river view or a beautiful ocean view, and the house is only $2 million, so I might as well take it. They're making a very individual choice to put themselves in the floodplain. They can afford it. Maybe they've insurance, maybe they don't but they're still making that choice, which then ripples out and affects other people's behavior and other people's options. We can contrast that to say people working in flood farming, subsistence farming, and then a country funded by international consortia builds a dam upstream and just completely removes their livelihoods. It may also be that they're then forced to uh, work someone else's land, so it's no longer their own land. They're dependent on that landlord for wages, And they're still living in a floodplain without fully understanding the flood. So then something happens upstream, the dam releases water, they're not used to the regular cycles, they're not really attuned to the natural flood cycle, and so they do get flooded, they lose everything they have, they cannot go to work on someone else's land, so they don't get their days of wages. So who's making those choices? And ultimately, it's about saying that it's really the systemic, systematic approaches to power resource allocation, and how we treat people, which ultimately causes and continues the vulnerabilities, which then create the disasters. So what we want to try and do is rebalance that to ensure that people do have the choices. And yet, if you have $2 million and you put it into a house uh, in a floodplain or in a seismic zone without any earthquake resistance measures, measures you're making a choice. What I would rather do is ensure that everyone has these options and we change disaster by choice to no disaster by choice.
0: One of the things in the United States um, it is that, you know, over certainly the 19th and into the 20th century, problem like a flood floodplain management, for example, or wildland fire management, a, a lot of that moved into the realm of expertise. And, and in some cases, pretty esoteric expertise as, as we might wish it to, Um, you know, these are uh, understanding these ecosystems. It's not something you wake up in the morning and walk outside and and understand how a floodplain works, but that there's a tension there with what you're describing, um, which might be a more thoroughgoing, more democratic uh, sort of set of interventions to talk through those choices. I'm fascinated by that tension. I'd like to sort of hear your take on it between sort of experts and management of environmental systems, uh, which when done in that way can can foreclose democracy, which is slow, messy, and sometimes often doesn't come to any conclusion or any clear set of conclusions.
1: To me, it's always a balance. I have learned so much from taxi drivers. On the other hand, I've also learned so much from professors and from people with PhDs. So it's really to me about exchanging and about always learning and always teaching. I find that when people call me an expert, I sort of think, well, hang on a minute. You know, be careful there because there's so much <laughs> yeah. I don't know and there's so much that I have to learn. So we can certainly discuss and see where I do know things, but we also have to be careful because I make mistakes. And I think that what we have very much lost in, in part of the separation that you're talking about, we've lost the ability to say, I'm sorry I was wrong, but you know, I've learned something I've and I've improved. And also, you know what? I didn't understand that, and I didn't really communicate it well, so let me try and do better. A lot of what we what we see today, which including sort of our early discussion regarding the face coverings, is people not even being willing to discuss. And in terms of trying to advocate, we're not really advocating for science-based policy. It's more about evidence-based policy, because science is a process, and it's a continual process. How can we simply admit what we do know and what we don't know what may happen or what may not happen and try and say well we can agree to disagree but here's a way forward so when we do sort of create these experts and then create our own bubbles and put ourselves on pedestals we are absolutely creating as much of a problem as those who say well i don't listen to the news and i just get all my information from from what my bubble is posting in facebook and those can be equally dangerous So when we talk about the wildfires that have recently hit the west coast of the US, there's been so much discourse about climate change caused this disaster. But climate change has influenced the fires, as have human activities other than climate change. The actual disaster is putting ourselves in fire-prone ecosystems without considering the fact that we might burn. And trying to engage in that discourse often does lead to as much hostility as trying to tackle or trying to uh, converse with the people who do not accept that humans are, are influencing the climate. And it's amazing the number of times when I sort of say, I'm curious where you get your information and I get no response. Right. Or people say, I don't believe what you're saying. And I say, okay, well, here's 20 scientific references. and And their reply is, I don't have time to read those. So I think what we're really struggling with is how do we avoid ourselves being arrogant? How do we avoid ourselves adding to the conflict and the discourse? And even earlier, I just sort of used the words tackle and then I changed that to converse. So I have to change the, my, the way I'm thinking sure. and really try and say, why do you think that way? Where are you getting your information? What would change your mind? And how can we actually be scientifically precise and accurate Ensure that evidence goes into our decisions and our policies, but recognize that the public, the so called non experts, those without a scientific background, have a very legitimate say. And it's up to us to meet them on their own terms. One other concern is also how much we, and you alluded to this, is how much we really separated ourselves from nature, which is not necessarily bad. You know, I'm perfectly comfortable here not having the wind howling as we're speaking, not being cold. But it does mean that, as you say, I walk out, look at the sky and I don't necessarily know what the weather is going to be during the day. Whereas that flood farmer, who I mentioned earlier, understands the soil, the river, the plants, the sky, the wind far, far better than I ever could. And same with people in forests. You know, you build your house in the forest, you think, oh, the trees are nice, um, but you don't realize that it's a burnable ecosystem. An ecosystem exists because it burns. So suddenly there's a spark 40 kilometers away and you think, oh, it's only that far away, not realizing that that's nothing for a wildfire because we've created that separation. So again, for me, it's balance. How can I survive the cold winters and the hot, humid summers without being affected while still being able to respond to the environment and understanding what the weather is on that day? It's hard and we've a long way to go.
0: It seems like there's uh, a great deal of, of education and a lot more information that needs to be in the space of deliberation that you're that you're describing, and again, a lot of times that information is either locked up in expertise or it's locked up by design because certain interests don't want you to know how frequently it floods in this place or how frequent a fire a fire might be in in this particular canyon or whatever that may be. I I have those. Those concerns, I'm sort of curious what you think are the right methods or venues to bring a greater amount of participation and a greater amount of transparency into this sort of broader this broader discussion.
1: Yeah, and the answer is I don't know. What I do know is that we are trying, and we're trying in different ways. So whether it's a book or a webinar or a scientific paper or a media interview or a blog or a commentary or an academic conference we're trying all of those and i don't think there is necessarily one right answer i don't really see that sort of one size fits all there's a perfect way to do it so there are certain elements that go into it and for me it's about diversity of communication so absolutely i want to write scientific papers and books and i want to do blogs commentaries and media interviews i want to be standing up in front of a classroom or virtual classroom but also talking to the public and talking to my peers to learn from everyone So for me, it's about a variety, a diversity of different communication approaches, seeing what messages work, what people respond to, where I err, and then try and improve. That's, for me, that's certainly one element. The other element is diversity. So certainly over the past 10 years, I've perhaps been on half a dozen all-male panels where we have four or five people there, and you kind of think, well, hang on a minute... (laughs) what's going on here, this this shouldn't happen. And so we're now trying very actively to say, are we respecting different viewpoints? Are we taking different approaches? And it's, of course, not just about men, women, it's a whole field of different um, aspects of people and whether they're disciplines or nationalities or different abilities or ethnicities, races, Uh, to try and ensure that we have that variety of perspectives again it doesn't mean that i'm right all the time it doesn't mean i'm wrong all the time it may mean that we're both right even though we differ and certainly everyone uh, including yourself of course and people in the audience know things and have experiences which i simply can't and i don't have so for me it's diversity in these different Mm -hmm. ways and it's also saying that nothing is static So we have had certain backlashes over recent years against so-called experts, so-called expertise. I don't understand where that came from. I don't know how to solve it. I'm doing my best by communicating and trying to deal with people who may disagree with me, but at the moment I simply don't have any answers. So it's a struggle, but by working together, by ensuring diversity of topic, of people, of approaches, we can hopefully learn and do better and learn to have this balance of trusting each other and saying well i'm not going to dispute everything and i'm going to really respect what someone is saying or doing even if i disagree with it that balance with the natural skepticism that comes from being a scientist and questioning everything and trying to evidence everything and trying to prove everything because we have to improve but also convey to the message that those who are out there saying well this pandemic is a hoax Or masks are dangerous and it's an infringement of our civil liberties trying to say, but you know what, here's certain mechanisms, modes of evidence, what would actually get you into the room to discuss it and then possibly change your mind, change your behavior, while you should also influence me to determine whether or not I'm making any mistakes and how I could improve. And yeah, we don't have answers. There's no single solution, but working together, learning from each other, hopefully we'll do better and move forward.
0: And just to come back to where we started with this part of the discussion and, and, and why I hope everybody will read your book is, is I think it's incredibly empowering and ultimately um, opens possibility for venues and formats of democracy which have been only lightly explored um, in this sort of era of expertise when we take it, when we really listen to what you're saying about the notion of environment being constructed and we take away the notion that the natural is some sort of you know, angry uh, weather out there waiting to get us. But we actually look at the whole system as constructed as interplay between human and natural systems. It should be empowering, I think. Um, and And again, to another excellent point I think you made, that if you bring a diversity of voices and expertises into the room, that's when, to me, it starts to get possible. That's when the room starts to crackle. And I've seen this it, across many different domains of what have been called sort of natural hazards and seismicity or wildland fire or water, um, there are experts who do their work um, behind a computer screen, and there are experts who are out there, uh, you know, collecting samples in the field, and there are the experts who are literally the the farmers and the fishermen and women who are who are experiencing that environment as part of their day-to-day work one thing just to, i i'd sort of be curious what you know what you think about this is it does to your point about the panels and and gender diversity it strikes me this is a possibility this moment is full of possibility we should not go back to the old system of and i've heard these discussions well we can't possibly bring too many voices it's expensive to bring these people from all over the world and and look at the way the room is organized it militates against exchange because there's the the stage is up there and there's the dais, and there's the expert way up there and the audience is way back here i might not have started from the position of hoping we could have a conversation on this platform or on zoom but i do think there's a leveling aspect to it and it certainly precludes the old excuses of cost of travel and rooms like that i mean I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but I'm I'm sort of awake to the possibility that we could have more inclusive discussions now. Counterintuitively, because we can't gather.
1: No, absolutely, and this is us having the privilege to take these opportunities and to do it. And there are so many positive examples. So again, the number of webinars, the number of online discussions, the number of people who I've met who would never be able to travel to meetings, or I certainly wouldn't be able to get to them, has been phenomenal. But we also have to be aware that there are those who are being left behind because of what's called the digital divide. Some people do not have this privilege, they don't have the opportunities, and they are also, they are suffering uh, and unable to take part in it, unable to, to learn and to listen and to contribute simply because they don't have the technology, they can't afford it, or they don't even have the internet or the bandwidth. So even the challenge of sort of communicating and we live in such an English dominated world. So any sort of electronic means does alter our voices slightly. And if you don't have the bandwidth for video, again, you can't see me speaking as I sort of mentioned earlier with a face covering. So I do have a lot of people where English is their fifth or sixth language say that aside from the affordability they actually really need that face to face because Mm -hmm. the body language conveys so much more they can see my lips and i can respond to them maybe i should speak a bit slower articulate a bit more or maybe they're fine and i can just speak as normal so again for me i'm privileged and by being able to adapt and i've used what more than half a dozen different venues for or software for for dealing with online recording and talks and, and meeting um, not everyone has that so it's up to us to look for the positive examples to ensure we have that positive change and to promote them to try to do better and same in disasters so what was very exciting about my book is that i was able to include a lot of success stories so from seattle to bangladesh from toronto to uh, Indonesia to say this is what some people are doing to make an environmental hazard not be hazardous, but actually part of their systems, part of their life, part of the approach which they take. So by saying it's not all doom and gloom, by saying some of us do have these options, but trying to use our privilege, trying to use our resources to help those who do not, we can actually say, here's how to be inspired by positive examples don't get completely distracted because all the places i mentioned still have issues we can always improve but it's not all bad so let's learn and try to do better while always trying to achieve a balance whether it's a digital divide or ensuring a hurricane does not become a hurricane disaster
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Elon Kelman today. Be sure to get your questions in. You can put them in to the YouTube live chat or you can just put them up on Twitter if you want and be sure to tag at US of Disaster. So the book came out. Uh, you finished writing it last year. Coronavirus was not, literally, the novel novel coronavirus was not amongst us. How do you take this what you've learned in the last six months and read it back through the kind of analysis and disaster by choice. In what sense is a pandemic a choice?
1: Yeah, frustratingly, it unfortunately corroborates everything in the book. And it fully confirms the idea that disasters are not natural, which also points out that, in fact, there's not much in the book which was original. This, these ideas are not mine. And I've simply been inspired by those who were writing publishing and talking long long before I was in this field I mean this stuff comes out from the 70s if not earlier and people have uh, been finding actually documents and philosophical ideas from past centuries which say the same thing and as an historian of course you know this uh, and know how much we don't know know how many archives we've not gone into so, yeah, you know, I have the book, I promote the idea, I have the papers, but to a large extent, it's not original. I'm simply repeating what others have taught me and inspired me. And it does become increasingly frustrating when something ostensibly new comes out, like the so called novel coronavirus or the pandemic, um, and people think, well, it's unprecedented. Um, but we knew all this before. The number of documents I've edited to simply delete the word unprecedented shows how quickly we forget history and fairly recent history, we're talking the 70s and 80s in terms of disaster research and how people often want to find something new in it. So why was this pandemic not a natural disaster? And it's actually on both sides of the risk equation, hazard and vulnerability. The hazard to a large extent we knew could exist I mean, microbes, viruses are common. We're aware of this. Where this virus appears to come from is through human behavior in terms of wrecking ecosystems, transporting animals out of their natural or typical areas, and not having very good hygiene when dealing with animals. This is not new. HIV, Ebola. The previous SARS uh, virus from 2002, 2003, mares in around 2012, all of, those, all of those were the same. They jumped species
0: mm-hmm.
1: from very unhygienic contact with animals, also linked to ecosystem destruction. So we knew this hazard could happen. Then when the virus was identified, the medical professionals in Wuhan were onto it right away. They said, you know, there's this really strange pneumonia, we're very concerned. They trace where they thought they came it from, where they thought it came from, and the authorities silenced them and intimidated them. The virus started spreading. Some governments were very quick and absolutely said, we have to deal with this, we're locking down, we're testing, we're tracing, we're isolating. Other governments like the UK said, eh, what's the big issue? So again, very clear decisions, despite past pandemic experiences. And we're not talking ancient history we're talking flu in 2009 we're talking sars 2002 2003 we're talking MERS in 2012. Right. we had this knowledge so on the whole hazard side it was constructed and then of course the vulnerabilities you know years decades of devastating health systems years decades of not paying our health professionals the salaries they deserve complete lack of preparedness in terms of personal protective equipment and recognizing who is vulnerable. So in the UK, over 300 health and care professionals have died of COVID-19. You know, out of 42,000, it may not seem a lot, but to lose that number of people dedicated to saving lives when it was entirely preventable, we're creating these vulnerabilities. If we don't care about each other's health, if we don't care about our health systems, If the health system cannot even deal with typical day-to-day and season-to-season health issues, which is common in the UK, then of course something comes along like a new virus and it's going to create a pandemic. Uh, The UK ran a a pandemic scenario a few years ago and the result was we are not ready. 2008, 2017, the National Risk Register Pandemic was one of the highest possible dangers. And the US, of course, uh, the previous president set up a pandemic commission, which was dismantled by the current president. So all these vulnerabilities were completely manufactured against knowledge, against understanding, against recent experience. So all these aspects of the pandemic the hazard, the vulnerability, the combination to risk, the creation of the disaster was entirely our own causation.
0: I think we have to make a pact. I'm right there with you on the unprecedented. We have to, after we're done getting rid of natural disaster, we have to get rid of unprecedented. Um, The number of times, just as you said, and also the black swan event, all of these different, you know, sort of tricks of language that try to once again sort of weave a kind of amnesiac spell around us, which blind us or make us forgetful of the past, which is right in front of us. I'm right my, there with you on that
1: point. My colleague, David Alexander, says that black swans are red herrings.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm going to use that. That's good. Um, and But this is also where your recent book converges with your your sort of other track of research, which is the disaster diplomacy work. And we have, um, you know, it, it's very common in disaster and borne out by disaster research to expect a sort of pro-social um moment sometimes much longer than a moment a protracted period of time in which people are helping they're maybe they're converging they're helping too much even in some cases there's an outpourings people usually in disasters give money they give blood they send teddy bears they send blankets they do everything they feel they can it's been a little bit different in the pandemic but international tensions don't cease in these moments, and certainly speaking from the perspective of the United States, the President of the United States has taken this moment to continually stoke um, a xenophobic fire, which he sees as in his own interest in shoring up his base for his election. There's a Trump effect which is maybe sui generis, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about disaster diplomacy and, and to what extent disasters reshape diplomatic relations, if they do, and and how you see that in the context of COVID?
1: Yeah, so when we look at disaster diplomacy, we're looking at all disaster-related activities. So before and after prevention, mitigation, preparedness, risk reduction, as well as response, recovery, and reconstruction. And the idea is exactly this question, how and why do disaster-related activities influence peace and conflict? What we find is that there is no causative factor. So dealing with disasters in any way does not really create new lasting diplomacy, peace, collaboration or cooperation. But it certainly influences it. It influences it in such a way that those making the decisions will pursue the predetermined pathway which they want. So if they want peace, absolutely, they'll use a disaster or disaster risk reduction to support their approaches to peace. But if they want conflict, then they'll do exactly the same. And it's exactly as you you mentioned with the president of the U.S. He has his predetermined ideas, his predetermined ideals. And no matter what the disaster or attempting to prevent one, he will find a way to morph that into supporting what he wants to do anyway. We've seen that with other countries so china has played both sides in terms of using the pandemic for peace and for conflict mm-hmm. on the conflict side so on the conflict side they've actually very much tried to send out a lot of messages about the us causing the pandemic right. and there was uh, all these ridiculous exchanges and war, 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 sort of wars of words between the chinese and american governments which is exactly continuing the on-again, off-again relationship, which the two countries have had under the current American president. Conversely, China has very much sent a lot of medical equipment, which some people will say is tokenism, other people will say is China helping the world, to countries which they wanted to foster and boost relations. Mm -hmm. China also has a Belt and Road Initiative, and they've been having a difficult decision amongst themselves, in that they promised a certain level of vaccines to countries who have been in the Belt and Road Initiative. Now they've been thinking, well, should they join the International Initiative of COVAX, which promises equitable distribution of vaccines, or can they do both, actually join COVAX internationally while favoring their Belt and Road Initiative countries? So again, they had the Belt and Road Initiative before, they've been doing all sorts of things, trying to get their influence. And coronavirus vaccine is just one other way of doing it. So what we are seeing is that all the aspects from the individuals fighting over toilet paper, for some bizarre reason, right up to national governments trying to make decisions about who gets vaccines. Very sadly, the fundamental disaster diplomacy ethos has been confirmed that disaster related activities do not create new or lasting cooperation. And that sort of speaks to the question which we have that How do I envision the operalization of global disaster diplomacy in eras of global hazard events? And the answer is, unfortunately, nothing has changed. So even other global hazard events, such as possible meteorite strikes, there are definitely international scientific and technical collaborations, but that's from people who want to collaborate anyway, and are trying to do very well for surveilling and monitoring to, to help the planet in case of a problem. But all these initiatives to deal with these global hazards have not led to new lasting diplomatic cooperation amongst countries.
0: Just I want to thank Joki Marumba, who was a guest on, on uh, COVID Calls earlier for that question, and thank you for addressing it. And and I take your point about sort of nation-to-nation diplomacy, but we've also been made aware some already knew these, but many people didn't, of the sort of level of international cooperation in other kinds of organizations, like the World Health Organization or the UN. We sort of hear about them, and maybe we don't know exactly what they do. Can you assess that a little bit, the sort of intermediaries in disaster diplomacy? Same effect? You don't really see their role shifting much in the midst of a disaster event? Or do you? are you seeing some other kinds of Uh, of effects, combinations that maybe you hadn't expected to see.
1: So absolutely. So taking the wider perspective of diplomacy and cooperation, we're all diplomats. And this happens in sports diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, Mm -hmm. international organizations, like you mentioned, the United Nations, subnational levels, whether it's provinces, states, municipalities, actually dealing with each other across international borders, irrespective of uh, sovereign government relationships, And then there's a lot of non-sovereign territories uh which then will be dealing with their sovereign neighbors or other non-sovereign neighbors and this we have looked at some of it but there's so much more to do how much does the media or celebrities how much do they influence diplomacy and other people's interests in other cultures no matter what their politicians and formal diplomats are doing Mm -hmm. When it comes to the U.N., it, it's a bit tricky because the U.N. is a member state organization. Right. So it's ironic that certain countries blame the WHO for messing this up, when in fact these are the countries which cut the WHO's budget. And this is not about coronavirus. Prior to the previous epido- Ebola epidemic, people were saying, well, the WHO really messed this up. I mean, they should have controlled it in West Africa long before it became an epidemic, But in the previous three to five years, countries had actually completely sliced the surveillance and monitoring budget of the WHO. So a lot of people who had long expertise and who were the ones who were doing this obviously left and got other jobs. So this is sort of what we see often with the UN of member states fighting each other and then saying, well, I'm not giving you money. Oh, now it's your fault that you don't have resources what we see at the multilateral level is often much more formal and intense sort of diplomatic dancing and diplomatic exchanges and even at the bilateral level. And we definitely, between WHO and some of the other ones, whether it's the Security Council or General Assembly, it's simply used for political purposes. So irrespective of the very dedicated staff, particularly the technical people who are on the ground saving lives, and trying to do their best within an absolutely horrendous morass of paperwork, bureaucracy, and administration, the organizations themselves are not really set up to create new cooperation or diplomacy. But at the individual level, of course, it happens. And one of my PhD students, Patricia Duda, has really pushed forward disaster diplomacy theory and practice quite substantively by looking at informal diplomacy. What I don't know and what we need to investigate is in the halls of Geneva or New York, or in the field camps within the Ebola epidemic or the coronavirus hotspots, are the UN bureaucrats and the UN technical experts forging these informal links, which then scale up, ripple out, in order to get things done. We know that it has happened in previous disaster diplomacy case studies. Mm -hmm. We know that individuals, grassroots, media, people with and without resources, religious leaders, business leaders have achieved a lot. How much has been formal or informal um, or along the continuum of formality and informality, we don't know, we need to investigate it. Whether or not celebrity diplomacy or sports diplomacy can then filter much more into disaster diplomacy, we don't know. So all the case studies that we have at multiple levels of diplomacy, Right now, show no success in disaster-related diplomacy. But there is so much out there that we're continuing to investigate, including case studies from the past several thousand years. Where there may have been influence, there might not be, but we need the historians, we need the anthropologists, we need the archaeologists to really investigate them and see. So, yeah, join us. You can see a lot on disasterdiplomacy.org. You have a lot of my contact details. If you want to try and disprove our current disaster diplomacy conclusion, please do so. Because we need to show how we can work together to help humanity. And if seeing almost a million people dying in a global disaster does not bring us together, then how are we going to do that in order to generate hope and inspiration so that we do actually come together before the disaster happens?
0: I'm so impressed by what you're. Uh, first of all, when you talk about going back a thousand years, my historian head starts to tingle. Uh, and I think about the possibilities of those, of those cases, and pushing simultaneously on the concept of diplomacy and disaster, and pushing it temporally in useful ways. I'm also impressed with the scale, and I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of the IPCC and climate change, and and what we, what we might learn in combination as we think about COVID-19 and the efforts of disaster diplomacy around climate change. Maybe some people still don't define climate change as a disaster. I certainly do. It's just moving slowly. And I guess you know what I would observe is that um, just at the time people seem to be losing some, this is coming from the US, seem to be losing faith with the IPCC. Here came Greta and suddenly... Greta Thunberg becomes the face of a movement which had millions of American school children out in the streets demanding climate justice. I, I think for most people, completely unexpected occurrence. And a very strong, I mean, to f- put her into this framework of diplomacy, she has become, I suppose, maybe you would disagree with me, but a sort of a celebrity climate activist in functioning in diplomatic, in a diplomatic way. But I guess i And sort of, there's not even really a good, well-framed question there, but you got me thinking when you were talking about that. And and I guess my question would be how you see previous efforts, like recent ones, like climate change work, how that might connect with this sort of disaster diplomacy and COVID.
1: Yeah, so this is where we have to be very self-reflective as scientists. Mm -hmm. The first major international scientific collaboration on climate change was effectively a couple of reports in 1970 and 1971. They inspired some multilateral scientific cooperation in the 80s, which led to a conference uh, with the World Meteorological Organization in 1988, and therefore the first IPCC report in 1990. So that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And what's interesting is that it is a scientific body or a body comprising mainly scientists, but the name is Intergovernmental Panel. It is a UN body. It answers to member states, and you can go to IPCC.ch, download the mandate, and realize that governments have to sign off on every single report which the scientists produce. Now, how much detail they go into depends on the report, depends on the government. We also know that the IPCC's job is not to produce new science. It is to get intergovernmental sign-off on the synthesis or consensus of what the science says. So again, the scientists have to get that sign off from the governments. Back to 1990 first report, we're probably now going to get the sixth report coming out next year or the year after. This is a long time to not have the policy success of an effective internationally legally binding treaty on climate change. So as scientists, Is it us who have gone wrong? Is it IPCC structure who's gone wrong? Is it subservience to member states which have gone wrong compared to a fairly well-educated and privileged teenager coming along and inspiring millions, exactly as you said. So maybe we need to, again, be self-reflective and say, Mm -hmm. if we want to have impact, if we want these treaties and the policies, open question, should we be bypassing the UN? Should we, we be working more with youth and social media? Should we be starting with environmental and climate governance beyond governments and beyond intergovernmental processes? So if scientists simply said, you know what, forget it. I'm giving up with the UN, I'm giving up with the IPCC. Let me put everything into Thunberg and the dozens, hundreds of other youth environmental activists from around the world. Right. Would we succeed more? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But I think these are questions which we have to be asking ourselves two generations on from the 1970 report, 50 years on from that, and we have wonderful science, incredible knowledge, so much research, but we're not acting at a global level. Is there nothing else we could have done? Or is it time to try and do something more? I don't know. We need to discuss this. We need to work on it. And we need to bring in Tunberg and the other wonderful youth activists uh, from all continents to say what do they need? How can we better serve them?
0: Comes back to where we started our discussion: some of these tensions between experts and democracy, and and that's to that's an artificial separation. And yet, the way you've described the formation of the IPCC, in a sense, playing by all of the post-war rules, the, all of the sort of Bretton Woods rules, like we have to do this; it has to be a global initiative, inputs from around the world, very slow, and ultimately a two or three countries um, can shut things down, and then here comes this teenager breaking through. Um, I hope people will take a look at your at your research there on disasterdiplomacy.org. We're almost up on time with Elon Kelman here on COVID Calls, but please get a question in. I think we can still sneak a couple more minutes in. I know it's getting late for you there. No problem. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, so this is for the wonks who are listening, but there are disaster research wonks out there and some regular listeners who didn't start in that way and now have become as such, and I've heard from them. You Also, you keep up with the research community itself, and you have a great publication out this year, which takes a look at the history and and state of play and um, maybe future trends for disaster risk reduction research. It's too much to ask you to do to summarize all of that. But I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit, and you just outlined one, um, areas where you would really like to see more research going, where you'd like to see combinations of researchers sort of moving into space that you think have a lot of potential in this moment.
1: I think a lot of us want to try and get people particularly those with the power to change what they do about disasters and how they view them we have the knowledge we've had it for decades what we are really troubled by is when that knowledge is not used at the very basic level such as using the phrase natural disaster such as not accepting or admitting what real vulnerabilities are and that they are long-term processes which create disasters, such as often regressing into a hazard focus and trying to blame changes in weather or a specific fire or a specific virus for the disaster rather than taking the broader and deeper views. So for me, the real pinpoint of the agenda for disaster research, how do we create the change which we're seeking? And in fact, there's a very good comment which has just come in in may the president of costa rica proposed a technology pooling initiative with who are there more initiatives like this and are they viable in the context of economic interests? and the answer is there are so many initiatives whether they are at the un level or at the local level a lot of these issues of pooling of collaborating i mentioned Covax earlier for example whether it's bringing together governments and technical people or simply individuals from different villages and settlements People are doing this. But the answer to effectiveness is some yes and some no. What are the factors which make it yes? What are the factors which make it no? What are the factors which put it in between? And again, this comes back to how do we change mindsets? How do we change behavior? How do we change attitudes? How do we create and change values to deal with not just disasters or vulnerabilities, but the fact that they are embedded in the wider issues of development, sustainability, equity, justice, resource distribution. What are the real influences? Can change happen quickly? Or is it generational? To me, these are really the wider issues about humanity, where we are going with our species and our planet, very much expressed in disasters and vulnerabilities, but not just in disasters and vulnerabilities. So I would really like to see disaster researchers expanding and deepening to try to say, "Do what change do we want, and how do we achieve that without causing more problems?
0: It's. I just want to let that settle for a second, because what you've said is something that I've been trying to articulate. The way I've been saying it is, I feel like if disaster researchers succeed, disaster will stop being what they're researching. And and what I mean by that is it will broaden out, it it will no longer accept the confines of something which we call a disaster, some exogenous bad thing that happened to us that we then get over and move past. But you've just been describing a, a set of methods which then unlock these broader questions. I, my sense is that many researchers are a little resistant to that. In some discussions I've had, they say, well, you know, I, I don't want to be a philosopher or I don't want to be an economist or I'm not here to critique capitalism. I'm interested in some quite specific questions um, that may be in sociology or that may be in anthropology or in international development. What do you say to a researcher who, who might have great interest and enthusiasm for the kind of empirical work you do but says you know I don't want to talk about politics I I don't want to get pulled into these kind of globalization and politics questions.
1: Well well, we need them because what I do is try to bring ideas and case studies together to seek patterns and to seek overarching approaches. Mm -hmm. I cannot do that with those who dive deep but very narrowly and I'll just repeat that nothing in my book is really original. I mean, there's not a lot that comes from me. It comes from those who have gone before me, who have done this very uh, perhaps disciplinary specific, perhaps case study specific, perhaps very narrow but deep work, which I can then use and acknowledge, but try and bring together and connect. So it's about diversity. I have no problem with disciplinary research, although I very rarely do it. What I hope is that the disciplinary people would not have a problem with the non-disciplinary or all-disciplinary approach, which I take. And we absolutely need the people who spend three years on their PhD doing nothing but a tiny little uh, topic or box. And then we can have others or them in their postdoc and during their career kind of expand outwards and ripple outwards. So this is about saying that some people prefer breadth and let's use it. Some people prefer depth and let's use it some people are also caught within their own systems to get credit and to retain their jobs they have to research in a certain way so rather than criticize let's use it positively and create spaces and venues where they can contribute in a different way while still getting the kudos which they need in order to continue contributing so i don't have that um, any issue with people who even want to focus on hazard and and discuss the minute details of hazard. Because if we don't understand seismic activity, it becomes much harder to, under, to understand and deal with the broader ideas of vulnerabilities to earthquakes and to other hazards. When we look at meteorites, as mentioned earlier, or coronavirus, a lot of that is hazard management. We know the vulnerabilities are there, but we also have to deal with the hazard. So we need the astronomers, we need the space scientists, we need the satellite engineers, just like we need the doctors, the nurses, the social workers, the epidemiologists and the virologists. As long as we do not diminish speciality and as long as we do not diminish generality, it's about working together, bouncing off each other, so we are always teaching, learning and exchanging.
0: Well, we are... Truly creeping up on time here, but I want to just get one more question, and that is, um, and I just want to encourage people to check out your website, and they can see the breadth of your, of your work there, which also includes your your thinking and working on memorials and on photography, which is all very important, and I, and I hope people will take a look at it. With that, and that, with that in mind, I know you take a global purview to disaster, but you've paid some attention on to remote places and islands, uh, more than a little attention. Right now, you're probably thinking about or looking at a place in the world that most of us are not thinking about to draw some lessons about COVID-19. Could you, you may not tell us all of them, but could you tell us one place in the world that you're keeping an eye on that maybe others aren't?
1: When it comes to islands, we had a paper published on Greenland, which was led by a co-author, Adam Grydehoy. And it was looking at the fact that Greenland is a semi-autonomous territory of Denmark, is an island with very uh, few transportation links, and so trying to understand local interests and the local approaches, and whether or not islandness or island characteristics did contribute to the fact that they have seemed, at the least at the moment, in terms of doing very well at keeping COVID-19. Uh, controlled and currently out of the island so it may not be a place which people necessarily think of as either an island or as a place of interest but it is intriguing looking at the political or geopolitical tensions and synergies between Greenland Denmark and the world while also recognizing uh, that the flights which come in for Copenhagen are very much a lifeline but also that lifeline can become a death line if it brings in The infection. These lessons also very much bounce back to us. So it is such an honor to be able to have seen so many places and be thinking about so many of these territories, to be able to take this global purview which you mentioned, but I also try and very much research and talk about the places where I've lived in or which uh, where I've originated. So we are doing some work on London, Very important. It's about saying that, yes, we can potentially talk about Tuvalu or Vanuatu or Greenland, but we also have to bring those lessons to London so that we do better here and across the UK. And again, this is part of what is just amazing about being a scientist and having that intellectual freedom to say, yes, we do need to help those people who are suffering most, but it's also about ourselves. And why would I dictate to anyone what they should do or what their government should have done if I'm not doing the same for myself, for my own governments, and for my own location? So, this is really part of joining forces, bringing together, learning from each other across continents, mm-hmm. as we're doing now. And really appreciate everyone who's contributed. Really appreciate you doing this. And, you know, I'm on social media Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. ResearchGate, Facebook, academia.edu. So please join. Tell me where I'm going wrong. Compliments are also welcome. Not a problem if you <laughs> want to tell me where I'm going right. And this is about linking, collaborating, and perhaps creating our own disaster diplomacy.
0: A reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at five o'clock tomorrow. I'm going to be speaking with Emily Rogers and Danya Glabo from New York University about the patients experience of COVID-19. Please do join me for that. And Ilan Kelman, thank you so much uh, for all you do and for taking this time at the end of what I'm sure was a busy research day for you. And really appreciate you being on COVID calls.
1: Thanks for the opportunity. And thanks to everyone who joined us.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.